Okay, Acts chapter 17. Okay, we're going to talk about from verse 16 to verse 34. But I just want to read, you, read together with you from verse 22 to verse 31. Okay, if you have a Bible, let's read together in count of three. One, two, three. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hand, as though he needed anything, since he himself gave to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God of spring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The time of ignorance had got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. And the Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. And I pray, Lord, that you use this word that we just read to transform our heart, mind, and soul. And I pray that you reveal your beauty to us, Lord, because when you reveal your beauty, and that's how our heart are transformed. We want to see you, Jesus. So reveal yourself. Use my limitation. Use my word to describe, to communicate the unlimited beauty of who you are, Jesus. And I cannot do this, Lord, but only you, Holy Spirit, can do it in our hearts. So Holy Spirit, take over and speak through my mouth, through my words, and transform our life. And we're ready to listen to your word. In the name of Almighty Christ, we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. Can I have a little bit of less monitor, please? Just a little bit less. Okay, today's a really, really hot day, right? <laughs> First of all, let me congratulate you for making it to church. Uh, you guys awesome, right? Because I'm pretty sure if you, you, you know, you're half-hearted Christian, you might be watching at home right now, right? You half-hearted Christian. See, last week, I let you off, right? This week, I'm going to go hard after you. No, just kidding. Um, today is really hot. And one of the things that hot weather push us to do, propel us to do, is drink a lot of water. Are you with me on that? Anyone ever experienced extreme thirst before? Like a few years ago, um, me and my friends, a couple of you guys, we went hiking up Baron Joy Lighthouse, right? And it was not a difficult hike, but it took about 40 minutes to get to the top. So, and then so back and forth, and the time we spent at the lighthouse, it amounts to total about two hours, okay? So again, it was not a difficult hike. But what made it very difficult for us was actually the sun, because the sun was like today. It was scorching hot. And here's the problem. For those two hours, I did not have a drink with me. Okay? I was very thirsty. So when we finished the trail and we get back down, all of us, we needed a cold drink to satisfy our thirst. And at that moment, 
Okay, you know the only drink that I could think of in that weather. You know what it is? Always Coca-Cola, right? So that is the first thing that comes to my mind. And I, okay, some of you guys remember. So we drove um, to the nearest convenience store to get Coca-Cola. Okay, so you got to imagine the scene with me, right? It was scorching hot. It was really, really hot. I was sweaty, smelly, and thirsty. Okay, and then I bought me a can of Coke. Okay. Can you imagine the excitement and the eagerness I have to open that can of Coke? Right? It's cold can of Coke, you know? So I open that can of Coke and you make that sound, right? So, and then I swallow it into my body. Okay, there are three of us. I remember there are three of us. We're drinking that Coke and we all agreed that that was the best Coke ever in our life. It was. It was so amazing. Like the first gulp was sensational. The second gulp was good. But by the third gulp, it was just okay. But it's the thing that you know about Coke, though. Even though it tastes awesome in the beginning, you and I know something about Coke. Coke does not satisfy your thirst. I mean, it satisfies your thirst for temporary, but then after a while, you become very thirsty. Are you with me? Are you familiar with that? That's what Coke does to you. And that is exactly the picture of what happened in our soul today. See? There's a universal thirst inside the heart of everyone that can only be satisfied by God. And in our passage for today, in our gospel movement series today, so we're going to see how the gospel penetrates the city of Athens. Now, I've talked to a lot of people, and a lot of people tell me today that they said Christianity today is really hard for Christianity to thrive today because our culture today is so much more skeptic than it was before. Okay, they say people today are a lot smarter than people in the past. But is it true? Because if we pay attention to history, in fact, the culture in which Christianity was born was extremely skeptical and hostile to the claim of Christianity. Yet, in spite of that, we know, just in a matter of a couple of hundred years, Christianity thrived and changed the whole Roman Empire. How? Because here's my premise. Because deep inside of every one of us, lies an innate desire for God, okay? So the problem with us, mankind, is not that we do not know God. No, no. The problem with us is, the problem with us is that we decided to invent our own version of God rather than worship the one true God. So one day, a boy was drawing, right? A boy was drawing a picture, and then the teacher looked at the picture and asked, hey, little Leo, uh, what are you drawing? And the boy said, I'm drawing a picture of God, and the teacher said, well, little yo-yo, you should know better. Your dad is a pastor, okay? That is not possible. That's theologically incorrect. You cannot draw God for nobody know what God looks like. And then little yo-yo looked up and said, they will when I'm finished. See, that's the, that's the picture of all of us because all of us, we have inner longing for God. But the problem is this. We created, we invented our own picture of God. So, so maybe, let me put it this way. So today, we think of God like Max Joy ice cream, right? This weather is perfect. So when we talk of Max Joy ice cream, we think of a lot of different flavors that we can choose from. So now, when we think of God, we like to pick and choose the flavor of God according to our personal preferences. And that's the problem with us. So the problem with us is then... Paul will come up to us and ask this question. I mean, okay, you want to invent your own God, that's cool, but are you sure 
that your version of God can actually satisfy your thirst? Are you sure that your version of God is actually big enough to answer your question? And that's the question that we want to deal with tonight. Because Paul wants to show us that the true God of heaven is big enough to answer all your questions and satisfy your thirst. Now, let me give you the context first. So today we're in Acts chapter 17, okay? I skipped Acts chapter 16 because I think we talked about that, I think early this year or late last year, um, Acts chapter 16. So I skipped that, and today we're in Acts chapter 17. So prior to this, Paul has traveled to many different places to preach the gospel. And whenever he go to the city, what happened was the hand of God was upon Paul, but at the same time, troubles accompanied him, okay? Everywhere he go, riots broke out, and he got expelled from the city. So he had to run for his life. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 17, without a doubt, Paul was tired. Paul was exhausted spiritually and physically. So his friends then decided to send him to Athens. Okay? The plan was for, uh, for Paul to wait to have a short holiday in Athens and wait till Timothy and Silas get there. Okay? But Athens is a very particular city. Okay? What comes to your mind when you think of Athens? Let me tell you what comes to my mind. Senseiya. Any, any, anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, that's it. And when I first think of Athens, like, oh, Senseiya. But apparently, when I study um, Athens, Athens apparently was a very religious city. Athens also is known for its very politic, culture, religion, and philosophy. So in the ancient times, it's called the intellectual capital of the ancient world. So what happened is this, all the smart scholars from all around the world would gather in the city of Athens to actually discuss their thoughts and ideas. Okay, that's the city of Athens. So the city of Athens is you know, filled with all these sophisticated men who like to share the philosophy of life. Okay, this is where we got you know, Socrates and all, all, that, all those people are in the city of Athens. And now here comes Paul. So Paul comes to the city of Athens, and he will bring his gospel with him, okay? And we'll see how, if the gospel actually able to engage the intellectual mind or not. And I separate this passage into three parts. Gospel worldview, gospel truth, and gospel challenge. Let's look at the first one. Gospel worldview. Verse 16 to verse 21. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he returned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout person, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this blabber have to say, wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching that you are presenting? For you bring some strange thing to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what this thing meant. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there will spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Okay, so that's their hobby. Their hobby is just to gather and discuss new ideas. Now, but look at what Paul does. So while Paul waits for Timothy and Silas to get to Athens, he does not remain idle. I mean, after all the hardship that he went through, I mean, we, he could be forgiven to think, you know what, I deserve a short holiday. Okay, I'm in Athens. I'm going to relax while, Tim, while I wait for Timothy and Silas. But that's not what he, chose, what he chose to do. Rather, in his holiday, he does not waste his holiday. 
He sees his short holiday in Athens as opportunity to share the gospel with the people of Athens. But the question is this, why, Paul? Why are you so driven to share the gospel with the people of Athens? Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, let me explain. The word provoke there is a very interesting word. It comes from a Greek word, paroxysm, which used in the Old Testament to express God's anger at idolatry. So this is not an anger that is motivated by hatred, but it's an anger that is motivated by love. Okay, let me put it this way. Guys, husband, because some of you are married. It's like you listening to your wife flirt with other men. What would you feel? Anyone would be glad and happy. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that my wife's such a good flirter. Awesome. No, right? What would you feel? You'll be angry. You'll be provoked. But not because you hate your wife, but because you love your wife. Okay, that's the idea behind the word, the word provoke. So now what happened is this. So now, uh, apparently in the city of Athens, one scholar said the city itself, the population have 10,000 people but it has 30,000 gods. <laughs> so one tree. So they have more gods than, than people. So now when Paul sees the city of Athens with all its beauty, and then he sees the idolatry in the city of Athens, he was provoked. He's like, he sees people who have deep thirst for God, and yet they're empty. They want God so bad. That's why they have 30,000 gods, and yet they are empty. So Paul does what he always does wherever he goes. First, he went to the synagogue to approach the Jew, to talk to the Jew about the gospel. And then he went to the marketplace to, talk, uh, to preach the gospel to the Gentile. Now, what is marketplace? I don't think we have equivalent, today's equivalent of marketplace. Marketplace is not shopping district. Okay, it is not. So marketplace in those days is basically the public space for everything. It is the intellectual center, the medical center, the financial center, it's the stock market, and it's, all, it's where you find all the latest gossip and idea. That's the marketplace. So imagine if internet is actually a place. Okay, that's marketplace. So now Paul comes to the marketplace and he reasoned with them about the gospel. Now the word reason does not mean he began to do street evangelism. So he does not go, repent or the fire of hell will burn you. He does not do that. The word reason actually means this. He will actually take time to listen to them, talk to them, ask questions, get their ideas right before he actually presents the gospel. So Paul will actually take the time to engage with the people in Athens. And because of that, this attracts the attention of Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Now, these two schools of philosophy, they are the cultural elites. They are the leading school of philosophy in those days. For the, for the Epicurean, they believe that gods are actually far removed and that the gods don't care about human. Therefore, the philosophy of their life is actually about the enjoyment of pleasure. They are very materialistic and hedonistic. So their motto in life is this. If it feels good, just do it. Pursue what you desire and avoid what hurts. Okay, that's the Epicurean. But the Stoic are the complete opposite. So the Stoic, they believe that the gods are everywhere, and they believe that everything that happens is by fate, and there's nothing they can do about it. 
So their philosophy of life basically is just be good. Okay, just be good and be noble. Their motto is this. You might not be able to change things around you, but you are in charge of yourself. Therefore, suck up and be good. So one, try to find meaning in pursuing pleasure. One, try to find meaning by being good. Does it sound familiar to you? Because that is exactly the philosophy of our days, right? Either you find meaning by pursuing pleasure or you find meaning in life by being good. So now, Paul, we've talked about the, about the gospel, and when Paul presents the gospel, some of them mock Paul. I mean, what is this ridiculous resurrection? But some of them actually interested, huh, let's, let's you know, we want to hear more about this. So they bring Paul to a place called Areopagus. This is where all the smart people will actually gather, sit together, and talk. And Paul gets to present to them about the gospel. Okay? Why am I telling all of you this? Here's the point. The reason I'm telling you all of this is simply this. Because you and I need to understand that philosophy does not stand on its own. Philosophy is derived from theology. Okay, let me put it in a more friendly way. Our view of life is not constructed independently. Our view of life is shaped by our view of God. So that's why we find when Paul talks about philosophy, he will, he does not address their fear of life, but he will address what? Their fear of God. Because Paul understands it's your fear of God that defines your fear of life. So that means this. For all of us in here who understand the gospel, it means simply this. It is impossible for us to understand the gospel and keep the gospel on Sunday. Because if you understand the gospel theology, the gospel theology creates gospel worldview. So that means now the way you see everything else in life is through the lens of the gospel. So the gospel has to affect both your public and private life or, or, or you have yet to understand what the gospel is. Let me put it this way. Okay, um, I'm wearing glasses right now. By the way, this is fake glasses. Okay? I'm just using it to make me look older. But let's say this is real glasses, like prescription glasses or sunglasses. So whenever you put on sunglasses or prescription glasses, whatever you see is affected by the lens in front of you. You remember that? And that is what needs to happen. Those who understand gospel theology need to be able to have the gospel worldview. When we have gospel theology, everything we see in life is affected by the gospel worldview. It cannot not be. Because that's how you see everything else. And that is the reason why Paul is provoked in his holiday. So he looked at the city of Athens with all the people, with all this historical beauty through the gospel lens. He sees people who are very artistic, intellectual, religious, and creative. But they're empty. And that's why he's not content. And one of the things that the Bible constantly tells us is this. Underneath every problem, underneath every sin... Every relational problem, every intellectual problem is a theological problem. The problem underneath every problem is we worship the wrong God. It is a problem of idolatry. An idol, they're not just statue that we bow down to, but today we understand that idol is whatever we build our lives on beside God. So it could be fame, could be sex, could be power, family, work, love, whatever it is. But it's that thing, you know, that gives you kind of sense of satisfaction temporarily, but only makes you even more thirsty afterward. 
the coke of your life. That's idol. You, you feel satisfied when you engage with it, but then afterward you become even more thirsty than before. That's idol. And if we understand the gospel, when we see people out there living in idolatry, we should be provoked by it. What I mean by provoke is not we get angry, you guys suck. No, it's not that. But we need to have the attitude that marks by both anger and love. We're not simply angry at them. We're not simply accepting toward them. But there's a mixture of truthfulness and tears, boldness and gentleness, holiness and grace. And then we reason with them. Let me tell you about the truth, the gospel truth. And what is the gospel truth? Let's look at the next point. Gospel truth. So this is what we'll argue with the people in Athens. Let me tell you the gospel truth. Verse 22, verse 29. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I find also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temple made by man, nor is he served by human hand as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and bread and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own posts have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like God or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Okay, I can explain. This is very mouthful. And this is very interesting. So when Paul talked to the people of Athens, the way he communicates the gospel is very different from the way he communicates the gospel to the Jew. So when he talked to the Jew, Paul always argued using the Old Testament. Why? Because they have the common agreement that the Old Testament is the Word of God. But when, they talk, when he talked to the Gentile, he does not use the Bible. Do you know why? Because the Gentile does not see the Bible as the Word of God. But Paul, and then find another common interest. Paul decided, huh, let me start it this way. People of Athens... I realize that you guys are very, very religious. Every corner I look, I find altars for different gods. So you guys are very, very religious. In fact, you also have an altar for the unknown god. Isn't that funny? So what happened is this. So the belief of those days is, in order for you to live a good life, you got to make the god happy. You got to serve the God. You got to give offering to the God. So what they do is this. In case there's a God that they missed out and that God got cranky, what did you left me out? Say they, they, they invented, they created an altar to the unknown God. So the God will not, be, not get cranky at them. You with me that? You with me on that? So now Paul says this. See that unknown God? Let me tell you about that unknown God. I'm going to tell you this unknown God is very different from the gods that you know. So Paul starts where they are and he confronts their theology. Paul will give them a God-sized God. How does he do it? He confronts their theology with two truths. First, God is greater than you think. Simple. And he does that by refilling three attributes of God. First, he says this, God is the creator. He began by saying, 
everything in this world that you can see and touch is made by God. So that means whatever we see with our eye, feel with our hands, smell with our nose, taste with our mouth, hear with our ear, all of them are created by God. Okay, this is groundbreaking. So with another word, it's like this. Have you ever bought an item that you really like in Australia? Only to look at the tag at the back of the item, say, made in China. Okay? All of us has, right? All of us do. Okay? I mean, you can buy a t-shirt that says, I love Sydney, made in China. And here's what Paul is saying. When you look at creation, when you look at the wonder of the universe, there's an invisible tag saying, made by God. A couple of years ago, me and my family, we went um, to see Grand Canyon, okay? Now, before I went to Grand Canyon, I knew what to expect. I mean, I've seen pictures of Grand Canyon, and I wasn't interested at all, because for me, Grand Canyon is just humongous orange rocks, nothing more, okay? But then, because, you know, it's the one of the most visited places in America, so when my parents came to America, we went to uh, uh, the Grand Canyon, but then, you know, today, today, people love to hike, right? Today, for, for, for whatever reason, today, this generation, people love to hike. So some people will go to, on two hours walk and then put their life on the line by climbing over the fence illegally and sit at the edge of wedding cake rock for the sake of posting picture on Instagram. Okay, how many of you are guilty of that? Don't raise your hand. That's what we do, okay? That's the, the culture today. But not so with my family, okay? My family... We were allergic to sun and sweat. So what we do, uh, we, we use a small plane to get to the top of Grand Canyon. Like, why sweat when you can spend money and just get in plane, right? Well, that's what we do. So we get a, hopping on a plane, and when we get dropped at the top of the Grand Canyon. And when I landed, when we landed at the top of the Grand Canyon, and when I finally saw the Grand Canyon, the beauty of Grand Canyon for myself, everything changed. Okay, there's three different kinds of war. First, it's like, whoa, that's good. The second kind of war, like, whoa, that's amazing. But then you and I know there's a third kind of war, a silent war, where you're just speechless. And when you're speechless, when you look at the beauty of the Grand Canyon in front of you, there's only one thing that comes to your mind, the greatness of the Creator. Now, here's what Paul's trying to say. If God is the creator of all things, if God created the Grand Canyon, if he's that big, he's that amazing, what makes you think that God can be limited, that you can actually put God in a small temple made by man? Okay, that's his first argument. It does not make any sense. He's too big. And the second thing, the second thing that will, post, will tell us is this, that God is self-sufficient. Because if God is the creator of everything, what makes us think there's something we can do for God? God owns everything. He owns the universe. He owns the solar system. He owns the sun, moon, and the earth. He owns the land on which we walk. He owns our life. He owns our talent. And God gives to mankind life, bread, and everything. So the fact that you and I are still breathing today is the fact is that God gave that bread to you. God is the one who gives you oxygen. So this is one true God. So Paul is giving us this picture of God that's so big and so great. He's self-sufficient. There's nothing that you and I can do to serve him. And third, God is sovereign. 
God determines every little detail in life. He determined the allotted periods and the boundary of our life. It means this. We are who we are and where we are, not by mistake. So I was born on January 4th in the year of not too long ago. I was born in Denpasar, Bali, Indonesia. My father is Samuel Yusuf and my mom is Lydia Benjamin. So I can tell you all the basic facts about my birth, but here's the thing. I had absolutely nothing to do with them. I did not decide to be born on 4th of January. I did not choose my dad and mom. I did not choose to be an Asian with tiny sexy eyes. I was born this way because of the works of my parents. And they get together, you know, and did what husband and do when they have nothing to do at night. And nine months later, I came up. And then when I was at the age of 10, my parents decided that they will move from Denpasar, Bali to Sydney, Australia. And, and in all of that, Paul is saying, there's none of that happened by accident. God allotted your boundaries and your life. So God is far greater than you think. That's his first argument. Now, let me tell you the bad news and the good news of the greatness of God. The bad news. The bad news is this. If God is that great, you cannot boss him around. I mean, you can't. I mean, and that's the God that our culture wants, right? The God that our culture wants is the God that will always do their bidding. So whenever something bad happened, COVID-19, our culture said, where is God? God is not there. So our kind of God is the kind of God that we can order around. We like to blame God for not doing his job whenever something bad happened in life. But Paul says, if God is great, what makes you think you can boss him around? What makes you think that you can control him? You cannot order him. He's far greater. That's the bad news. Here's the good news, okay? And if you want to have a tattoo, I suggest you tattoo this on your body, okay? So I'm pretty much giving you permission for tattoo, guys. Got this, okay? Next slide. God does not need me. Can we say it together in count of three? One, two, three. God does not need me. I mean, that should be very relieving for you and me. Because a lot of time, the way we think about our life is this, that somehow we got to contribute in order for God to do His work in our life. So somehow the way that we think about God a lot of time is this, that we, God is in need of help. But that is not the God of Christianity. God of Christianity, He does not need any help. He's not seeking those who want to help Him, no. God of Christianity is seeking those who need His help. And that is what's radical about Christianity. Because Christianity teaches that our God is a happy God. It means He has no lack. He's content. He's smiling all the way from eternity to eternity. So the God of Christianity teaches that God finds delight in helping those who are weak. He has no need and He cannot be served. But He loves to serve those who come to Him. So with another word, the gospel is not God needs help, but God loves to help. We don't come to God to give Him something. See, we come to God to receive from Him. Now, I love the way John Piper described it in his book, Pleasure of God. He says this. He says, God is like a mountain spring. How do you glorify the word of a mountain spring? 
you do not glorify a mountain spring by trying to conserve the water. Oh, no, no, no. Don't drink too much, guys. Don't drink too much. Otherwise, we're going to run out of water. We're going to keep it full. No. You do not glorify a mountain spring that way. Because why? Because a mountain spring is self-replenishing. We glorify the word of mountain spring by getting down on our hand and knee and drink to our heart satisfaction. And this, my friend, what makes a big difference. So that means if we understand that God, God is great and He does not need us, when we come to Him, we do not come to give, we come to receive. That means we come to church being hungry, we come thirsty, we come desperate, we come with expectancy, we come not to give to God, but we come asking God to give to us. And this kind of great God, He's not honored by us working for Him. He's honored when we seek and receive from Him. And that is our God. He's greater than you think. But the second thing, so Paul confronts the theology of the people of Athens. He says, God is far greater than you think. But second, God is closer than you know. So Paul says that the reason that God created us, sustained us, and determined our life is simply one, so that you and I might come to know God. So Paul's saying God is not far. He's not far from us. And then Paul quotes a popular secular author of his day to make his point. So he's trying to build a bridge. It's like me. It's like today, me in the sermon, and suddenly I quote, baby, 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 oh. Right? You guys know where I come from, right? So that, what, that's what Paul's doing. So Paul tried to engage his audience by using people that they know. And he says, even one of your poets say that we are God's offspring. So Paul take that through, and now he mentioned to the people, if we are God's offspring, that means we are created in the image of God. We are created for God. There's innate desire for God inside of us. So that means the knowledge of God is not just something that's imprinted in the creation outside of us, but it's something that's imprinted inside of us as well. If that is true, it is very insulting then for you to think of God as an image of gold, stone, and silver. Because we are God's offspring. You, you see what Paul's trying to do? He's trying to argue. He's trying to use philosophy and theology to argue with them. But here's the problem with humanity as a whole. See, we have innate longing for God. But here's the problem. Every one of us reject the true knowledge of God. See, God is far greater than we think, and He's far closer than we know. And He wants our fellowship. But the problem is this. We do not want Him. Romans 1, 18-20 is what they say. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who bear their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul is clear now. Listen, guys. Even the atheists, you might say there is no God. But deep inside of you, you know there is a God. You have the knowledge of God, but the problem with you is that you rejected that knowledge of God. We instinctively know that God exists, but our sinful heart refuses the truth. It's not that we cannot know God, but we do not want to know God. 
You see the difference? You know God, but you don't want to know God. But then, here's the problem though. Even though we do not want to know God, we cannot live as if God does not exist. Here's the problem with modern mind. Let me give you one example. How many of you believe that murder, murder is absolutely wrong? Raise your hand. Murder, murder. Murder is wrong. Okay, if you do not raise your hand, Usher, please take note of them. Okay? It's wrong, right? Murder is absolutely wrong. But let me ask you a question. Why? On what ground do we say that murder is absolutely wrong? Because if we believe in the theory of evolution that there is no God and everything just happened by chance and it's a survival of the fetus, then here's the question. What ground can we say, what ground do we have to say that murder is wrong? We, we don't have one. The best that we can do is say this, you know what? Please do not murder because I feel that it is not the right thing to do. Please don't do it. But we absolutely have no ground to say that murder is wrong. To say something is wrong, it means there's independent standard of moral absolute that exists apart from feelings. And that moral absolute only tells us that it comes from God. So if you reject the existence of God, then you do not have moral absolutes. So we got to stop saying, so if you want to be consistent in the fact that there is no God, then we got to stop saying that it is wrong. This is wrong. You can't say that. Everything becomes relative. Without God, there's no moral absolute. Here's the question. Can we live without moral absolute? Yes, we can. Until someone randomly punches us in the face because they feel like it. Then suddenly you believe in moral absolutes. You can't. So now Paul confronted the inconsistent theology of the people. He gave them the God, big size God, God size God. God is greater than you think and God is closer than you know. And I love the way Evelyn Underhill put it. He said, she put it this way. If God were small enough to be understood, he will not be big enough to be worshipped. See, if we have a God who's small enough for us to understand and to serve in the temple made by man, well, then that God is not worthy of our worship. But if God is big enough to be worshipped, then he's big enough for us to not understand him. Okay? And then the third, and Paul would conclude with a gospel challenge. Verse 30 and 31. My last point. Gospel challenge. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So after Paul gave the gospel truth, now Paul challenges his audience. You only have the option, pretty much. You either embrace the true God or you face the judgment of God. Your option is either to repent or perish. Because God has appointed a time where he will judge the world in righteousness. And when that day comes, everyone is accountable for their decision. And there will not be a single person that say, well, I do not know God, because everybody knows God. A time will come where you, stand, you, will, you have to stand before the judgment of God, and you've got to make your choice. 
are you going to receive eternal life or eternal condemnation? And the good news for us is this. You and I today, we don't have to face the judgments of God. Why? Because think about it. All of us have sinned against one true God. We have rejected Him, we have, and we deserve eternal damnation. There's nothing, there's absolutely nothing that we can do that can earn brownie point with God. Why? Because He has no need. I mean, if God has a need, then we can earn brownie point with God, right? By meeting that need. But if God has no need, He's not needing anything, how on earth can we earn brownie point with God? None. We cannot get on God's good side. We are on God's bad side because we sin against God. And that's the problem. God is so great until He does not need anything. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do to be right with Him. But the good news of the gospel is this, that the God who has no need, He humbled Himself and He became the greatest servant. Mark 10 verse 45, this is what Jesus said about His mission. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And the word serve here, my friend, it means to wait on tables. So basically what Jesus is saying to you and me is this. When Jesus came to earth, he came to be your waiter. So he came to serve you. So Jesus is saying now, the God, the creator God, the self-sufficient God, the sovereign God, he came to earth not because he's seeking people to serve him. No, he came to earth because he wants to serve you and me. Because you and I are in this big predicament that we have a great God who are angry with us and we cannot do anything to get on His good side. And therefore, God Himself make Himself low, take the form of servant, and He serve us by dying at the cross. And when He died at the cross, He's the radical claim of Christianity. When Jesus first came to earth, He did not come to judge us. He came to bear judgment. God was both so angry and so in love. He was so angry that he had to die. And he was so in love that he was glad to die. So God is so great that he cannot be served. And the debt of Christ is so great that it is sufficient to pay our debt to God. And that is the good news of the gospel. Jesus came to us not because he needed us but because we need him. He became ransom and prayed the price of our sin with his death. And on the third day, God gave his time of approval, Jesus' perfect work, and raised Jesus from the dead so that whoever put their faith in Jesus will be served by Jesus for eternity. Okay? Don't get it wrong. Okay? I know it sounds heretical, but it's not. Jesus is our greatest servant. See, the gospel is not us serving Jesus, but Jesus serving us. See, Christian life is not a life of serving Jesus, but a life of being served by Jesus daily. And that changed the game for us Christians. Because a lot of times, the reason that we're tired in walking with God, the reason that we're weary, exhausted, is why? Because we think of our Christian life as a way for us to serve God, as if He's lacking but yet, Christianity tells us, oh, hold on a second, God has no need. The reason that we come to serve God is because God serves us through it. The reason that we come to church is because we are desperate and hungry for God, not to get a brownie point with God, because we want God to satisfy our thirst. The reason that we pray is because we desperately need God. The reason that we read the Bible is because we need Him to give us our daily food. 
So now everything about Christianity is different. It's not about you performing for God. It's about God serving you. And that is the good news, my friend. So now, when you come to church, when you come to God, you actually have the access of His unlimited resources who's ready to serve you daily. The question is this. Are we letting Jesus serve us today? Or are we still trying to serve Jesus? Let me close with this. Verse 32 and 33. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Aeropagot, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. When we share the gospel, there are three possible responses. One, they are unpersuaded and they mock us. Two, they want to hear more about it before they decide. Or three, they believe. But our role is not to be the one who do the persuasion. That's the Holy Spirit role. Our role is to be faithful and engage them with the gospel. Because that is what Jesus did for us. Here's the gospel. Jesus looked down from heaven and he was provoked by adultery. He was so angry and yet he was so in love and he chose not to ignore us. So Jesus came down and got involved and he showed us the insufficiency of our idols and revealed the one true God who came to serve us through his death and resurrection. He did not need us, but he wants us. And as Jesus has done to us, now let's us do the same to other people. That is the gospel movement. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. Forgive us, Lord, for if again and again we think too small of you. Think of you like other gods out there that need us to perform in order for you to be happy. But remind us today that you are a perfect God who has no need whatsoever. And not only that you have no need, but yet your disposition toward us is good. Because we are covered in your son's blood and righteousness. So that right now, Lord, when we come to you, we do not come trying to please you, but we come knowing that you are already pleased with us and ready to serve us. So I pray, Lord, that we that would change the way we think about Christianity. But that would that would change the way we think about our life. And I pray that that will empower us to live our life for your glory. Help us, Lord, to be a generation, to be a people who play part in the gospel movement. Not because we have to, not because we try to earn brownie points with you, but because you have done everything for us. And because of that, we are provoked by other people's idolatry and we want them to know you, the one true living God. Help us, Holy Spirit. Burn that passion in our heart. In your son's name we pray. Amen.